trying to put these things on. And I get the privilege of being able to talk about the next part of this series, which we're talking about ancient wisdom in the present tense. And what we mean by that is when we look at to the wisdom tradition, when you go through the Bible, there's a section that would be called um, the writings, if you're looking at some of the um, Jewish works or the wisdom traditions, which is a way to say it's a way to grow up. When you look at the wisdom tradition, which generally has to do with um, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, um, and some select sections of poetry, we could change the verses that say wise and fool with the mature and the immature if we wanted to update it for our language. Because really what it's talking about is how do we become a fully matured person? So as we see what is the wise man, what is the fool, it's what is it to have mature spirituality? So as we like to do as we're stepping into this moment, we like to start with Stasio, or sorry, Lectio Divina, where we read, the, we read the verse a couple of times and we just try to respond to the words that we hear. So the first time through, we'll read from the NIV. An unfriendly person pursues selfish ends and against all sound judgment starts quarrels. Fools find no pleasure in understanding, but delight in airing their own opinions. And again, an unfriendly person pursues selfish ends. Against all sound judgment starts quarrels. Fools find no pleasure in understanding, but delights in airing their own opinion. Did any part of that um, stand out for somebody? What do you hear when you hear that passage? For myself, um, I like a couple of my favorite scholars' translations of it. If you haven't heard of Robert Alter, look him up. He's amazing. He does a lot with literature. But he says, a loner seeks a pretext. Where one needs prudence, he is exposed. A fool does not care for discerning, but for exposing his inner thoughts. Or if you want to make it a little bit more in your face, Golden Gay says, the stupid person doesn't delight in understanding rather than disclosing his thinking. So as we look at the wisdom tradition here, this tradition follows a way of growing into maturity, like I said. So the question of Proverbs, the question of these statements are a one-size-fits-all for all time, absolute, perfect truth. But it's a way of being able to challenge, to provoke. It's not something that fits in every situation, but it is something that if you're not challenged at some points in your day, then maybe you're not paying attention. The Proverbs is written to an agrarian society or farm-based society where the people rarely traveled and most would know the same land, the same communities, and hold on to the same grievances, grudges, and offenses from birth until death. The person understands themselves and according to their social relationship in the community because in the ancient societies, you didn't just say, who are you? You first would say, who am I and my family? And who is my family within the town? Which is why if you heard stories of Ruth and Boaz, the big thing was, was there someone from their family that could bring them back in? To separate or to isolate yourself, as it says, that the one who isolates himself 
seeks his own desires is to move against what you would see as the community good. I no longer care how things affect you. I don't actually invest myself in your development. It only matters what I need in this moment. I supersedes anything that you would have. So whether I wound you, whether I take from you, doesn't matter because the I goes first. This was the way it was until about the age of industrialization where the world shrank. And the reason why that's important, even though it's a random historical fact, is because within these societies that we had this group consciousness, our families gave us identity within our town, within our surnames, within our villages. We didn't have these borders as much as you had villages that had far-reaching reputations. You had main cities that you could say, I know the people of Vancouver, but it wasn't until you start getting late to human history that you'd say, I know the nation of Canada. You'd have the large cities and you'd have these peoples defined there. But then once the states got defined, then once industrialization happened, the world started shrinking because the village became a household and the household then got shrunk to two parents with their children, no longer those above them. That actually got in about the middle of the 20th century. Because before your household included everybody that you had obligation to, everyone living, your aunts, your uncles, your cousins, your brothers, your brother's children, your parents, your grandparents. If you were so lucky to have a long life, then you got to oversee an entire neighborhood grow, and this was your household. But industrialization started to move humans. It shrunk us. It brought us into the single unit. Who am I and what is my house? Which is why rather than having laws to protect the neighbor that comes in to dwell with us, we get these rules, at least I'm from the States, we have what's called castle laws, which are still active in Texas and Oregon. If you come onto our property in Texas or Oregon, I have family in both places, we can shoot you without cause. You just literally need to come onto the property. And because it's an idea of castle domain, each man's house is his own castle, we've shrunk from the village and the worrying about the stranger and hospitality to I have this very definitive borderline, me and my children rule this, for you to step onto my land. Rather than if we see into the wisdom literature like in Deuteronomy towards us, do not harvest to the very edge of the land. The poor need a place to eat, which would require them being on your land. We're allowed to, at the very least, it's common, um, because where I was raised, we had farms. Here's a few farms you knew that they loaded their shotguns with rock salt. And so you didn't go and play in their fields because a few of us got tagged with rock salt. I don't know if that's ever happened to you. It stings. It turns out salt embedded in skin from shotgun is ow. Just in case you guys didn't put that one together. Um, but this, it shrunk. It shrunk from the whole town, from the whole village, from the whole area. It shrunk from a household being extended family and people you cared about. It shrunk from a tribe and a community saying, I may not know you, but your life depends on my hospitality because you could be a stranger in these lands, to saying, who is my immediate? And we come to the smallest, most replaceable part. And shrinking to the smallest, most replaceable part gets most clearly seen in the phenomenon of Facebook. Because within Facebook, we believe that we interact with other people, except when someone really irritates you, you can hit the secret friend button, which is on the right-hand side, which says hide all of their posts so I never have to hear from them. But it doesn't say unfriend them. Because when you unfriend them, they notice someone else calls you. It's like, why did you unfriend them? 
I did this with a family friend. I unfriended her 10 times because she's legitimately like, she needs help. Um, but every time within three days, somehow I would pop back in and be like, Lana wants to be your friend again. I was like, no, no, please. And so I'd say, yes, I'd wait three days, unfriend it. But the secret friend button, that edits my feed so I can shrink it down. I don't have to deal with her, but she thinks we're close. But that, that then creates this weird thing within Facebook. I think I'm dealing with other people, but it turns into an echo chamber. I think I dealt with somebody else, but the only thing that comes back to me is actually my voice resonating back. If I don't agree with you, if I don't like you, if I think you're foolish, I can just edit my feed. So everything coming at me, and this actually affected our last election cycle, they said, because so many people edited down the influences coming to them that all that happened is they thought they were more right and more right and more right. Kind of like when you get upset and you go to your one friend that you know will get just as excited as you and say, you're right, no one's ever been as wronged as you, we should get really upset at this person. And you get into that moment of like, yes, I am vindicated, I am amazing, I am flawless, this person's a jerk. And you just get that reverb going because you never hear a contrary voice. And so we believe we are engaging, we're listening, we're reasoning, but like the fool, we take no pleasure in understanding, only increasing the noise so we're drawn to noise, to distraction, or anything which moves us from here. As Rob Bell was pointing out, and this was a few years ago, it has nothing on the technology and distraction we have now. That we have the ability never to be present. We have the ability to disconnect, to distract, to say that I do not have to be in this moment and face something that is in front of me. We miss the ability to see the human. And most often we think the voices, the distractions are from outside of us, but I have found that the distractions that most pull me from being present with you actually come from in my own head because I can live the most amazing escapist fantasy that if I could just not be in this moment, that something would be better. That if I can disconnect and it takes away from the ability to actually build something of value and beauty. So to bring the ancient wisdom into the present tense, to read the verse one more time. Um, and just so you know, the way Proverbs works, so these two sentences, one defines it, the next one builds it. So the unfriendly person for the way the NIV translates or the loner for the way some others do is also the fool in the second line. So it builds on who that person is. So the unfriendly person pursues selfish ends. Against all sound judgment starts quarrels. Fools find no pleasure in understanding, but delight in airing their own opinions. And at that point, I'd like to ask, anyone ever been in a Facebook fight? Today? Oh, just a minute, like any time. I know it's, it's one of the weirdest things because some of the people I know, well, this gentleman is, I went to high school with him. I shared, I won't say the name of the politician because we are passionate in these things. I shared a politician I like who I thought said very Jesus-minded things about looking after the poor and looking out for everyone and let's love people. And my old high school friend sent a paragraph this long saying, I was no longer a man. I was no longer an American. I'm obviously brainwashed, a leftist creep. And I hate all things that are godly. And I was like, man, I didn't even say, I just said, does this sound cool? 
I even put it at the front. Don't have to listen if you don't like them. I thought this sounded neat. But it's, we don't actually care about engaging the other person because right now, for me to be crass, for me to be rude, for me to be offensive, for me to separate, you're in front of me, I can't ignore your humanity. But when it comes to the idea of Facebook spirituality, we're bold as lions and just about as caring. And it usually ends in damage. And where I wanted to go with this today is actually to show where my foolishness, my inability to listen, my passionate desire to air out my opinions actually was challenged because this verse became very um, personal for me over the last few years when I've realized the way I thought was so secure and flawless actually had to be challenged by the person sitting in front of me. And I'd say, if you hear yourself in this story, sometimes the greatest growth we'll have will never be from a Bible study, although I spend a lot of time in Bible study. Do it, it's awesome. But it'll never be done in the academics. It's actually in the humanity in front of you touching your life. So in Hawaii, where Carl and I went to Bible college, I wasn't very flexible intellectually. Um, I'd make some certain jokes, and I would generally have an idea that I was the only right voice. As long as you agreed with me or within close proximity to me, you had about two steps away from me, and you could still be good, but otherwise you're an idiot. I will still like you. I will let you finish your thought, but I didn't have to have anything to do with you. You know why? You were wrong, and that was it. My 24 years of experience eclipsed all who came before me. I was insightful, I was passionate, and if you gave me a three-second pause, I would make sure you knew it. Luckily, people were more gracious with me than I was with them. By the end of that, some professors took a liking to me and said, um, you might need to go to grad school because you're smart, but you're too brash, and someone needs to beat some of this out of you. And so a friend uh, introduced me to a person who ran Andover Newton Theological School. Up until this moment, um, I had never really experienced much other than myself. I was raised in a small town of 2,000 people where we understood there was difference. We just never met them. Like, honestly, we were all blue-collar, cisgendered, white males in lower middle class to upper poor. We literally had the black family and two Mexican families who were called the black family and the two Mexican families, one owned the Mexican shop in town. We didn't have different. We didn't have gender different, sexuality different. We barely had race different. I went to Hawaii and it was my first experience of not seeing myself in everything. And I actually had a hard time adjusting to that. When suddenly uh, Carl and I were going down the street and a cop pulled over and started yelling at me because I jaywalked and he just starts laughing. I was like, what? He goes, Justice, finally. Like, the white guy gets yelled at. <laughs> He's like, I was raised in Canada. He said, it was always me. And he, because the woman didn't even say anything. She said, oh, hi, brother. Now you, what are you doing? And he's like, this has never happened. He goes, we need to go around town more. <laughs> but that was my first experience of not seeing myself in every situation of power. Not seeing myself in every reading, knowing that my most right reading was not going to be reflected back at me. And it caused me to wrestle a little bit. But I can say in the environment I was in, it was still pretty closed. I didn't have to listen too much because my foolish desire to always air out my opinions still reflected some of the people around me. 
So I didn't have to learn how to listen that much, but it did start me on the journey of saying, maybe not every experience is the same as mine. And so I went to grad school in Boston. And now when I went to grad school in Boston, I knew two scholars from this school. I get excited about things, which means I do not look up anything if I'm going to do it. I'm just like, wow, that sounds so cool. Okay, I'm going. And I sell everything except for what fits in my 93 Corolla. I drive across country with my brother. We almost lose all our gas money in Reno because we were fools and not wise. We thought, you know, that would be a great way to do a very, very um, meager trip across the United States. Let's play poker. I know, right? What else would you do with your gas money when you're already about seven hours away from home? But I was dumb. However, we were down $605 before we looked at each other and went, do we have enough gas to get back to grandma's? She will save us. Then the cards turned, magically shot out of the hole, and we left with $1. We lost nothing. I still have that poker chip to remind me, don't be stupid. It sits on my desk. I don't always listen to it. And so we make it across the state, and then it's that time to where we're going to be coming into a meeting in school orientation. I know Herzog, who was a scholar I loved, and one other gentleman whose name's I forget now, who's a friend of a friend. He was nice. But Herzog was my hero. I got to meet him. I went to this school for him. I knew nothing else. And when I'm sitting around this area, all of a sudden this girl walks up to me and she goes, hi, you're kind of cute and you're here, but you seem out of place. I was like, this is the weirdest pickup line ever, but I like it. She just called me cute. Like, well, hi, I'm Glenn. She goes, oh no, honey. I was like, that wasn't a pickup line. She goes, do you want to take a look around and just, I'll give you a minute, you'll catch up. Didn't dawn on me. That's when she informed me my school was the Center of Queer Theory and Social Justice. I was one of three straight guys on campus. I was the only straight guy in my orientation. And I was the only person that wasn't a part of an LGBTQ advocacy group. I was like, wait a minute, picking up on something here. And after they explained it to me, it forced me to do something I've never had to do before. I had to sit and to listen to everybody's stories. And it affected me because as I had to sit and listen, I could witness something I could never have known before because when you always hear yourself echoed back, you think that your assumptions are right. Not just right, but they're flawless because we have the same shared assumptions. And if they're always flawless, I never actually have to listen because I know exactly what you're going to say. I could finish your lines once you start them. In Hawaii, I got the first taste of not being the dominant race in the area. And I was like, oh, this is weird. In Boston, I got the first time that my voice wasn't the defining voice for the whole community. And what really made me laugh is what these people define themselves by they said, we have such a love for scripture and Jesus, it has to affect our world. And so I got to sit in something that I thought could never be because at least the way I was raised, the LGBTQ community was something that was forbidden. It was something that not only hated Jesus, but hated God and could never reflect. Where I was raised is this was something never to listen to because they will corrupt you. They have an evil agenda trying to take over our country. And I behaved like the fool who always said, 
you know? I have something to tell you, but nothing to learn. While I was there, I experienced love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control in these people who were weeping. One of, one of my friends, Josh, gave up a six-figure income because he said, I had such a hard time dealing with depression and suicidal tendencies at, in high school because of my experience with the church. He said, I gave up my position at my family business because I want to become a priest so no one has to go through my teenage years. And he gave himself to ministry. He's, he's actually still in the ministry. Another gentleman who's a friend of mine, and these were guys that got to sit in the circle and hear their tears, would weep every night when we'd go out for a beer. And he'd just say, if only, if only I could be attracted to a woman because he was from Texas. He said, my home church would let me work there. He said, but I don't want to lie to them and I can't lie to Christ. And every night he wept because all he wanted to do was be able to go home and work within the church because he said, but for these things. But I saw graciousness, love, and kindness. I saw compassion, and it dawned on me, if Galatians says these things only come from God, and I witnessed them in other humanity, I actually had to come to a turning in the road where I could say, either these things do not only come from God, or if I learn not to be the fool, airing out my own opinions, and get affected by somebody else's humanity, I might have an incarnational experience. Rather than being Facebook spirituality, if I sat across Christ's table with you, you could affect me. And in affecting me, actually challenged where I see God. And in that, it actually creates an incarnational moment because we see Christ in the eyes of the other person. We experience God as we understand each other as reflections because we are the image bearers of God. And so at the end of that, I've had to wrestle for the rest of the time because um, what came, at least for me, in light of this proverb of, of pulling this, of trying to find pleasure in understanding rather than just in airing my opinion. And to understand is not listening to counter-argue. Because we've all been in those conversations. We've all had those friends, the ones who are contrarian, the ones who start the fights just for the fights, the one who doesn't actually listen to your story, but just wants to counterpoint you. It usually starts with, yeah, but. You could be weeping, saying, this is how it harmed me. He's like, um, or my favorite was, it trended for a while, said, hashtag, um, not all men, when these women were saying all these violent sexual acts happened. And they said, well, not all men. I've heard it with churches as well, where we hear these church, rather than sitting in the person's pain of their story and say, wow, that's crippling, I'm so sorry. Say, well, not all churches, because we have a hard time owning that pain of humanity. And we, we've heard those. We hate it when we're on the other side of it. And this forced me to wrestle with an idea, of, which I'm still wrestling with, is I can hold on to nothing that will separate me from the humanity in front of me. Because if God is truly incarnate and we are the image bearers of God, if what I'm holding on to separates me from you, keeps me from being able to see the unexpected grace of you, then I need to allow God to give me wisdom or, like I said, to give me a mature spirituality that can transcend Facebook. So if you haven't heard of a, a philosopher called Spinoza, 
he was a Jewish philosopher, I believe. What, 18, 18th century? Yeah, yeah, something around there. Cool century. A lot of smart people. But he said, I have, I have labored carefully not to mock, not to lament, or to look down on, but to understand humanity. And I think that is the call that we see in these verses. An immature spirituality, an immature person, finds no pleasure in laboring because it's always laborsome to enter into somebody else's story. To not demand that your story has to obey mine to truly experience you. But delights in airing their own opinions. So the mature, as Spinoza said, labors carefully to be able to hear, to understand, not to mock and criticize, not to counterpoint, but to experience who you are and say, yes, I have found God even here. And so at this point, we typically like to have a bit of a dialogue and stepping into this notion of um, what it looks like to go into, I'd like to return to the question of has, oh, sorry, that sounded like an alarm for a second. Um, Has anyone who's been in a Facebook fight, how did it unfold for you? Did you change anybody's mind? Like, have you ever had your mind changed over a Facebook fight? Like suddenly went, wow, I never saw it that way before. I'd say in these moments that we, because typically what happens for these moments is we strip the other person of their humanity because we don't see them as full persons. They're blinking screens, but sometimes we do that in life. And what we call that is stereotypes. When we see the stereotype, they're a blinking screen that we automatically feel a lot of detail in behind. I'd say, um, have you ever experienced being heard by someone you completely agree with or disagree with? Someone you see as the opposite spectrum of whatever your debate was, but they actually took the time to hear you. Um, I'd say I used to be aggressive in those conversations, and at least for me, the change has been not so much I realize I'm wrong on multiple things, but I can say this is my experience. And within my experiences, how I've come to understand something, but my experience has softened in the sense to say, my experience does not dictate yours. If you have found God in this moment, I should be able to come alongside and celebrate. And if I see the virtues of God in you, I should be able to celebrate, even if neither one of us understood how the other person got here. So in this, has anyone ever had a moment, if you could tell us, where you've experienced uncommon grace in the people who go against your understanding? I'd say, in this moment, we're about to transition into doing the Eucharist. And I'd say, this is one of the things we do to try to turn down the noise a bit. We gather around the cup, we gather around the bread that we can recognize in all of our disagreement, in any ways we cannot see eye to eye and not understand how each of us has arrived at the table, that we hold the tension to create the space for each one to be present at the table because we desire to have a mature wisdom which doesn't delight in just saying what we think, but enters into the angst of creating space for the other person here.